and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the future of the Europe-China relationship. I am joined from Paris by François Goudemont, the head of our China and Asia programme, and Abigail Vassilier, who is a researcher of our China and Asia programme. Both have co-written a major report on EU-China relations called China at the Gates, which is a power audit of the relationship between Europe and China. And the peg for our discussion is Emmanuel Macron's visit to China, which has been dominating the pictures on television and in newspapers for the last few days, and started with a declaration from Emmanuel Macron that Europe is back. So, François, should we start with this visit? What did it tell us about the the future of the relationship? Well, first of all, there was a lot of expectation built up by the Chinese, essentially think tank, second track, media, saying, you know, Macron is the thing now in Europe, France is the thing, we want to have a, a, a better relation and to focus on France. Implicitly, of course, it also means that uh, we are de-emphasizing our relations with Germany, whether it is because uh, out of spite for recent criticism for Germany, or perhaps, of course, because Germany is in the, in the process, is waiting for its government uh, to be full. So on the background of that expectation, Uh, One has to admire the uh, artist performance uh, that Macron gave. Unbelievably long, flourished and detailed speeches on past and present relationships, including cultural with China, uh, ranging all the way from humility. He said, we feel humility in front of China. There was the gift of a horse from the Republican Guard of Paris, you know, which is a kind of reciprocity for pandas. There was all of that, and at the same time, as of course Emmanuel Macron... The Chinese adaptation of Macron's name, Macalong, means um, the horse that tames the dragon. Yeah, that had come in handy. Uh, The previous name was less favorable, but they changed it after he was elected. And so it's clearly a charm offensive on a man from China. It's a recipe that has worked very well recently uh, on Donald Trump, as you know. and, and it also means that China knows that it has a problem in Europe currently and that it has to innovate. On the other hand, d'un autre côté, en même temps, as Macron would say, he stood very firm on a number of issues, all of which focused on the economy, reciprocity, uh, Europe talking with one voice and the need to take Europe seriously, uh, stuff mezzo voce from his main ministers, you know, Le Drian saying just on the eve of the trip, uh, win-win shouldn't mean that uh, China wins twice. Uh, His economic minister in Beijing saying Chinese investment is fine, but uh, you're not there to plunder France. Uh, The word pillage uh, was used. So you can say he stood his ground and it must have been quite a bewildering show. Sometimes he made those remarks on the side of uh, Xi Jinping. It's a bit like the show he had delivered with, uh, with Vladimir Putin in Versailles or with Erdogan last week. With one big reservation on human rights, he shut up completely and even uh, gave a kind of uh, white uh, blanket, uh, uh, blank check 
uh, to China, saying publicly that there was no use to public remonstrations uh, on human rights, which I think is a tactical mistake. Okay, and Abigail, do you think he managed to bring anything home as a result of this um, virtuosity performance? This is ambiguous because even though he puts the, the, the focus of his visit on economic diplomacy, what we have now is a series of announcements on which he will now have to build up. And I think it's going to be the challenge for the French um, diplomacy uh, and the French companies to now build on this um, announcements and this is not this shouldn't be taken for granted by France um, and for sure it isn't I would say I would add one thing to what Francois just said which is that he also flattered the Chinese by talking again about BRI so BRI is the the Belt and Road Initiative which is this massive um, project of railroads and pipelines and shipping routes and ports, formerly known as the One Belt, One Road Initiative, which um, Xi Jinping launched a, a few years ago. Indeed, by doing this, I think the charming offensive um, is a success from a, a Chinese point of view and perception. And I think with that done, he managed to, as Francois said, set also the ground for um, reciprocity, for to say that uh, we need to rebalance our trade with China and um, to have a more balanced approach. So, Francois, you've been talking about reciprocity for a long time. About almost 10 years ago, you wrote our first parallel audit of EU-China relations, where you said that, that we need to have a more reciprocal relationship. What, what does it actually mean in practice? Where do we not have reciprocity at the moment? What would, it look, what would the relationship look like if it was reciprocal? Well, if it was reciprocal, you would be able to acquire Chinese companies in critical areas, you would have access to public markets, uh, you wouldn't be able to use, uh, to use uh, an example that I, I, I tasted myself, you wouldn't be uh, unable to use your credit card in China as is now happening because you essentially need to use a union pay system more and more outside of big hotels. The Chinese system is not opening up further, it's in fact closing up on a number of developments and that is of course a big issue. But beyond that, I think we shouldn't hide from ourselves that putting reciprocity forward means that we're now on the defensive. Uh, it means we're justified in taking defensive measures because we don't expect much from China. So I would call it a necessary but default policy uh, that Europe is now on the verge of adopting. So, Francois, you talked about the fact that we're now on the defensive. In a way, that's one of the big topics in the report, which the two of you have just published, the ECFR Power Audit on China. Um, can you maybe, Abigail, start by talking a bit more about how China is trying to change Europe? Because the old discussions were about Europe changing China. That doesn't seem to be uh, uh, the main focus of uh, the visit, as Francois said earlier. Macron wasn't talking very much about human rights in China or about political reform in China, which used to be a, an important part of these visits. So how, how's China trying to change Europe? I think um, China is um, laying out a series of 
um, strategy to influence Europe, and it goes from um, having a toolbox of um, soft power tools to influence um, decision, the decision-making process here in Europe and the perception of Europeans. And it goes from um, the increasing number of Confucius Institutes uh, that we have found. It, um, it also encompasses... So how many are there now? Because the, the, Confu the Confucius Institutes are like, um, they're, they're to promote Chinese culture and language. They're like the British Council, the, the uh, Institut Francais the Goethe Institute. How many are there in Europe now? 165 Confucius Institutes and the highest number is in the UK. Um, 29. 29 in the 29. UK, as Francois said. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, we also identified a number of uh, media who got um, paid by, um, by Chinese companies we identified the number so how many i mean the, the, the facts are very are very interesting so do you want to give us a sense of how widespread that is? it's essentially paid supplements in major european media uh including you know big names uh le figaro el pais uh, uh and so on all of it driven essentially by xinhua and by the official chinese media Again, there is an issue of reciprocity because, on the other hand, some European media are banned altogether uh, in China on the web. For example, their websites cannot be accessed. Okay, so carry on. So we had the Confucius Institutes, the media. But we are soft in our conclusions, Mark. Uh, what we say, and it's very different from the Russian influence and manipulating operations, so what the Chinese do is they just let their <coughs> good fortune hang out and look who is ready to jump in the hoop. <coughs> and what we find essentially is that all across Europe there are politicians of every ilk who are, not to mention businessmen of course, who are more than ready to jump through the hoop. And this is how China selects its friends. Uh, advertising, so to speak, the garden of peaches uh, rather than going out and trying to make an impression on your brain. We also emphasize that the Chinese influence game in Europe is quantitative rather than qualitative. It's very repetitive, it's not very innovative, and it influences basically those who are either in great need of cash, in great need of China, therefore, or who have great expectations to break, uh, to, to, to break a barrier in the Chinese market that goes particularly for companies. So we, we're not necessarily talking about the Chinese plot. We're talking about Chinese way of doing business and influencing. Uh, we're also saying that the Chinese are not really investing all their efforts to conquer Europe. For example, there is one step they won't take, which is bent to fit European norms in many areas. They want to do business on their own terms. They want to land on their own terms. They are not keen for running into open tenders on public rules, perhaps because they know they won't win them. So, you know, Europe is important. It's a market, but China sees it as a kind of local specie, uh, not as the future of the world. Maybe um, one other strategy which you talk about, which might be worth mentioning before we look at how successful they've been, is um, some of the relationships that they've built up with different groups of countries. So one thing which there's been a, a big... Uh, 
debate about, which we talked about before on this podcast, is the so-called 16 plus one process, which is China's attempts to reach out to Eastern European countries. In the, in, in the power audits, um, one thing that we do is to deconstruct the 16 plus one. We are, we basically observed in Central and Eastern Europe um, that what they are looking for is recognition. It is recognition that um, they are a valid partner for um, China. It is recognition from Western European countries that um, that they are in the game when it comes to EU-China relations and that if we look at concretely what the 16 plus 1 mean and is about, it's not much. It's an annual meeting, it's, uh, it's an hour spent with a high-level Chinese representative. Um, so all this is important for them, but at the end of the day, they are looking for recognition. And I think on this um, sub-regional grouping, it's, um, it's an interesting strategy from the Chinese to basically enter Europe. It's a, a strategy to divide, indeed, and this has worked. Um, we see discussions now around a subgrouping in the north, uh, 5 plus 1 in the south, with the Mediterranean. But in, when we do the reality check, there is not much um, that is happening. François, do you have... Yeah, it's much more impressive to see how much China has penetrated Italy, for example. The economy, society, including football clubs, of course, uh, scientific and technological exam exchanges, uh, acquiring high-tech firms. Uh, we heard a lot about you know, indirect financing of electoral campaigns, for example. Southern Europe after the Euro crisis, and you know some Southern Europe say, "Well, you you made us do it uh, with the debt crisis." Uh, Italy, even more so than Greece, perhaps, if I may say, uh, Portugal being more and more influenced. That is, in fact, more impressive than what's happening in Eastern Europe. Of course, we have the Orban case, uh, you know, where the, the politics happen to coincide pretty well. But even Orban, for example, when it's on trade issues, on anti-dumping uh, and so forth, he follows Germany more than China. Uh, he's not completely crazy uh, in, terms of, in terms of economic policy. Uh, Southern Europe has been benefiting undeniably from major Chinese acquisitions at a time when public assets were for sale. And I think it's the heart of the Chinese influence inside the European Union now. So how, apart from the fact that they own a lot of assets in different European countries, how much influence has China actually had over European politics? How much influence do they want to have? I don't think they want to own us. I think they want to disarm us. Uh, they Now, exactly as with ASEAN, they have the ways and means to avoid unanimity at European Council meetings when China is concerned. It's becoming more and more difficult on any subject to have unanimity. And we'll be very lucky, for example, that the investment screening uh, directive, which is being contemplated now, only requires a qualified majority. That gives it a chance. If it was unanimity, it would never pass. So are there examples, are there specific examples you could point to of, of Europeans um, failing to agree on things because of the Chinese influence? Very weak, Council resolution on South China Sea and the legal 
uh, decision in The Hague, uh, impossibility to get together uh, on human rights uh, on several occasions. Th those are very clear uh, ex examples. It's less true uh, of the economy, because again, there, uh, even though the Southern European countries don't want to be prevented from taking in Chinese investment, they realize that there is an interest in having common policies. So you've been pushing for a long time, and it's one of the big ideas in your power audit, this idea of, of, of investment screening. Um, it's kind of uh, clear that when China's tried to buy things in the United States, there have been all sorts of attempts to, to block China from taking over things which are seen as strategic, um, you know, whether it's in the energy sector or in defense or in, in other areas. Um, what is the current situation in the UK and why is this something that, that matters? In the European Union, of course, uh, including yeah. the UK, uh, because you can see something that looks very much like a concerted plan to use Europe as a, as a supplier of high technologies in areas where China is in need. And it can't be spelled out, you know, as a master plan, but when you add up the detail, you take stuff like robotics, you take stuff like uh, energy, uh, including offshore uh, exploration and drilling. You take aerospace. Uh, you, you, you take the naval industries. Uh, you will find an extraordinary web of acquisitions by the Chinese, which added up mean that the technology capacity is being transferred to China piece by piece. And, and there are very clear tactics uh, including, you know, use of offshore uh, uh, centers to buy, use of proxies, subsidiaries, uh, and so forth. But it looks very much like a concerted plan. This, in fact, is what shifted Germany's position. Germany was the ultimate free trader uh, in Europe, traditionally, even more so than the UK, by the way, in terms of how it voted uh, at the European level. And China has made it shift uh, very clearly. Uh, we just had this week, by the way, uh, the first interdiction uh, by, uh, and it's by Germany, of acquisition by a Chinese company of a uh, German aeronautics supplier to Airbus. And I can tell you this follows other acquisitions of suppliers in other countries. And it's interesting that it's Germany that takes the lead in this case in saying no. Yeah, I would add... I would add one thing, Mark, which is that in 2016, there was a large wave of Chinese investment. Um, and I mean, we can discuss numbers, but um, Rojam counted 35 billion euro of in Chinese investment in Europe, and it was an increase by 77% uh, compared to um, 2015. And so the numbers are telling. Uh, Francois was talking about Germany, and I think the Kuka case was a wake-up call for them. Um, it became a source of concern for a number of countries and at the EU level. And right now what we see is also the EU moving forward on that. But if um, things are being blocked in different ways, um, at a national level, why does there need to be a European uh, move? I mean, what, what, what would be changed if there was a European investment screening directive? Well, first of all, it's the only way to prevent protection degenerating into protectionism. There's got to be a rule, there's got to be a watchdog 
otherwise it's going to be a free-for-all, and either it's going to be, you know, competition among member states to attract Chinese investment and uh, too much leeway uh, for, for Chinese uh, uh, buyers, or on the contrary, uh, uh, protectionist closure. So this is the way to do it, and you've got to look at European industry as really a cross-European reality. It's no longer purely a national reality. Uh, even the biggest names have suppliers from all over Europe. So we're talking about a production chain. Uh, the other reason, of course, is that taken one by one, even the strongest European economy doesn't have enough leverage uh, to face China. If China envisions sanctions, for example, or tit for tat, that would be their definition of reciprocity, uh, by the way, uh, it's not going to be able to stand up to it. And we are already seeing cases where this is being used. Uh, uh, so th this is important. The other side, of course, is that we all love Chinese cash. And this is what President Macron repeated to the Chinese. This is what the British consistently say uh, to the Chinese. Uh, but we want cash under the right terms. I would add one thing, which is that not all the countries uh, in the EU have right now an investment screening mechanism. So it would also put everyone at the table and have, um, and have a joint mechanism to do that. So uh, another area which um, people are thinking about China in is in a defensive way is whether China can actually help defend European Union against uh, Trump's destruction of the, the global liberal order. Um, that, you know, there's an element on that which is about protecting the Paris climate deal, but there is also questions about the WTO dispute um, mechanisms. Um, what do you think about that? Is that something you looked at in the Power Audit? Not centrally, because we figure that uh, we don't have one problem, we have two problems. I love to cite uh, our American colleague and competitor for the, you know, from the Elizabeth Economy from the American Council on Foreign Relations, uh, who recently said, we have two problems. America sucks, and China can't replace it. Uh, these are two distinct problems. In fact, we have a problem with Trump uh, over first uncertainty uh, and second, uh, a tendency to pull back from any sort of international engagement doesn't mean that we have a meaningful uh, engagement with rules uh, with China. There are areas that would look promising. Everybody cites climate and environment because Xi Jinping, as a strong man, has decided in 2017 to finally curb in pollution at, around the major cities in China. He's, you know, unleashing an extraordinary effort uh, to pull back the seat, uh, in this area. Uh, but the fact that China does things for its own interests doesn't mean it's going to get into binding agreements with rules uh, that it will later have to follow. Uh, it is, again, doing things or not doing things, but more on its own terms. When it is figures of speech, they will always say international law multilateralism again, uh, uh, Xi Jinping has adopted the term, UN, and so forth. They will never defer in general terms. But if you look at the fine print, if you look at the action, it can be very different. So are there any other big ideas which um, you think European governments should adopt in your, in your uh, power audit? 
Abigail? Yes, there is one more. Um, as a recommendation, what we are also putting forward is a discussion on rebalancing our partners in Asia um, and maybe strengthening our partnership with India um, or with Japan um, in order to rebalance uh, and, ha and gain some leverage in our relations with, um, with China. Um, so this is something we are developing as another a key idea. And um, what we see in the China-EU relations is more and more linkages on the Chinese side. Um, so we basically develop the, the, um, an explanation on what happened during the EU-China summit on climate. And this is an example for us on how the Chinese are now linking uh, their interests um, to gain leverage on the European side. And an idea that we are putting forward is to be to avoid these linkages. Okay, so um, Francois, having put forward all of these different ideas and seen Emmanuel Macron's um, visit to, to China, how would you uh, grade his trip as a, as a kind of uh, champion of some of the ideas that, you were, that you've been trying to get Europeans to, to put forward? A plus on, on cohesion, uh, expression of European unity, and clear, I mean, explaining to Xi Jinping's face that it's actually in China's interest to have a united Europe negotiating the terms of the relationship, which takes some gall, you know. Uh, D minus, as I said, on the human rights issue, uh, I think Emmanuel Macron cannot help from being a former banker who is more interested in figures uh, and who doesn't really realize, as Mrs. Merkel does, what it is to live under that kind of regime. Uh, in terms of French economic interest, Abigail spoke about it already. What I would just say is that the Chinese have some leverage because the Macron has really pushed and literally gone beyond his host in announcing a future airplane deal and also announced as Dawn uh, a deal on, 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 on nuclear waste treatment that's actually been negotiated for 10 years. We all know that the, it's a question of money, it's a question of how much, but the Chinese now have some leverage uh, because were they to pull back, people would say, well, Macron did exactly what Sarkozy did with Brazil, what Hollande did with India uh, on the Rafale. Every time they go, they announce a deal and then it doesn't happen. So, you know, the art of the deal uh, is not something that's easy to master when you're talking with a giant like China. Okay, Abigail, um, maybe end with you. Um, what, what would you give uh, Macron on his report card for, for the visit? Okay, I think if I um, take the power audit and um, uh, I first share François' assessment, but compared to the power audit, it would be an A um, <laughs> because he managed to uh, say Europe is back and this is a key message that uh, the Chinese haven't um, yet understood, uh, which is that we are at a different time in the EU uh, where there, there is good prospects and the time is changing in the EU. And Macron, in his visit, showed that um, the European Union is a strong actor in the international um, relations. And he's completely 
um, align with what, Juncker, what was Juncker's position at the EU-China summit and what Sigmar Gabriel said when he said that there is one Europe compared to one China. Okay, well, I'm sure that we will come back uh, to this topic. We can see how other leaders do when they uh, visit China in the, in the future. But also, um, we can go further into this as, uh, as, as there are more Chinese visits to, to Europe. These are a big set of issues, but it was great to, to hear what you thought about that. We have one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, Francois, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? It's a book that hasn't even been published yet. It will be out on January 30. It's, and it's by one of the main competitors to, the, to ECFR's Asia program. Sebastian Heilman, who runs Merix, is going to publish a book with Columbia University Press called Red Swan, How Unorthodox Policies Helped China's Rise. And it's smack on our topic, and I know he's a very good expert on these technocratic policies. And he, as, as a researcher, as an academic, has always been torn uh, between admiration for the way the, the uh, uh, successor of the uh, Chinese eternal bureaucracy does it, and of course, basic democratic instincts, which tells us we don't want to do it their way. So I'm really waiting uh, f with interest on how he will uh, describe those unorthodox policy moves uh, some of which are merely, you know, course correction uh, and ability to control uh, and to uh, emulate, uh, which have produced this extraordinary rise of China. What about you, Abigail? My book is not about China, but it's about Burma. Um, it's The Lady and the Generals uh, from Peter Pofam. And it's basically, it starts as a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi, and then it turns into a good depiction of Burma, its contradiction. It explains how um, when, she was, when the general arrived and she was relieved from um, the house of arrest, there was a, a moment of hope, and how um, slowly the Buddhist monks um, came back, started their campaign, uh, the anti-Muslim campaign, leading to the Rohingya crisis, and how she is trapped. Um, so I think it's a good uh, depiction of the contradictions, the difficulties that she has, and her complex position. And if you, if you are a think tanker, and if you want to look at the Rohingya crisis, I, need, I think you need to place Aung San Suu Kyi back in her past, basically. Okay, and um, my warm recommendation to all of you is to read China at the Gates, a new power audit of EU-China relations by, uh, by Francois and Abigail. This brings the podcast to an end. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please make sure that you let your friends and colleagues know about it by writing about it on your Facebook page or on ours, tweeting about it, and above all, by racing to the reviews and ratings page on iTunes and leaving us a, a, a review and a rating. For now, from uh, Francois Godemont, Abigail Vassilier, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, and our editor is Katharina Botel-Atzinaro. Mm -hmm.